Welcome to the uh, closing night of the LSE Festival 2020, Shape the World. I am Simon Hicks. I'm a pro-director of the LSE. That's a fancy word we have at LSE for one of the vice presidents here at LSE. Um, I'm also the convener of the festival, um, and it's been a great pleasure to be the convener this year and see so many great events. Um, our festival has run all week as part of a year of activities explaining and exploring how the social sciences have shaped the world and are continuing to shape the world and to make the case really for the role of the social sciences in helping us think about how to make the world a better place. Tonight we conclude the festival uh, by imagining our futures, um, how we can all shape the world with our actions, what should we start, stop and continue doing and if you could do one thing to change the world what would that be? This evening, we have a panel of LSE academics who are here to offer some answers from their own research and from their own areas of expertise in the social sciences. So let me just introduce them one by one. So we have here Simi Dosekin, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Media and Communications. On the end, we have Florian Fuss, who is Assistant Professor of Political Behavior in the Department of Government. Sam Friedman, in the middle there, is, the, is an Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology. Ria Ivendic is a postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for Economic Performance. And last but not least, we have Kasia Paproki, who is Assistant Professor in Environment in the Department of Geography and Environment. Each of our panellists will have eight minutes to present their views on the actions we can take to shape the world. And once they've shared their perspectives, we'll be coming to the audience for some of your views. Just to remind you, if you're following on Twitter, the hashtags for tonight's events are... LSE Festival and hashtag Shape the World. Um, the event is being live streamed, so welcome to those of you watching from all around the world. Um, from outside this theatre, it says on here. But anyway. um, Do join the conversation on Twitter. Though uh, In the audience, please make sure your phones are on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Um, finally, I will remind you that the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And when we're all done, we have a reception afterwards. So you get a reward for coming along tonight. So thank you very much. Uh, so I'm going to introduce our first speaker, uh, and it is Simi for second. Thanks. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm just going to jump straight in because I have eight minutes, um, and I have two pages, which I suspect is probably slightly longer than eight minutes. Um, so without too much preamble, I'll just say uh, start um, by saying very broadly speaking, my research is on elite Africans and the spectacular lifestyles that they lead. Um, so spectacular in the sense of fabulous, glamorous, and in these respects, highly consumerist. Um, spectacular also in the sense of highly visible, particularly against the backdrop of poverty and deprivation that characterize the broader African uh, sociocultural landscape. landscape. Also spectacularized in the sense of put, put on display to be looked at very visible in media culture in particular. Um, so about a year ago, I was invited to Witts University in Johannesburg um, to speak as part of a seminar series entitled Map Mapping African Futures, um, which sought to reflect via a, key, a set of key uh, themes and problematics, uh, sought to reflect on where the continent seems to be going. And I was asked to speak on the particular theme of consumption because, again, it's quite central to my work. Um, and the following question was offered to me as a prompt. Um, so the question was, will the population described optimistically as the consuming African middle class, uh, will it provide emotionally and economically robust and sustainable ethics and livelihoods for the futures of the, of the continent or the futures of the societies on the continent? Um, so in my brief, very brief remarks today, I want to revisit this question to sort of draw out some suggestions about 
uh, well, to tell you what, some of what I said in, our, in response to this question and some suggestions about what all of us, not only Africans, might sort of need to think about starting, stopping, continuing, and so on, to change the world for the better. So again, the question that was posed to me, will the consuming African middle class provide economically robust and sustainable livelihoods and futures and so on? So when I first read the question, my first thought was, no, of course not. Uh, what an optimistic question. I thought the, the question itself was optimistic. Um, but on further reflection and trying to be optimistic myself and recognizing, including recognizing the certain irony that I was being flown to Johannesburg from London to talk about excessive consumption, um, you know, so I, I said I have to go there with something more than kind of gloom, gloom and doom. Um, so I suggested in Johannesburg last year and today again or this evening again I want to suggest that of course it's not impossible that the rising consuming African middle class will indeed commit or subscribe to practices of what we could call ethical consumption or what is often called ethical consumption. Um, so consumption guided by ethical concerns about uh, labor practices, um, environmental standards and so on and so forth. So my, my suggestion is that um, Again, the rising consuming African middle class may precisely subscribe to these to, to increasingly ethical forms of consumption, precisely if or as uh, these forms of consumption become and these concerns about consumption become the global norm uh, or the more general norm. Um, you know, to the extent that they become the way we all come to or intend to consume, um, particularly in the context of our unfolding climate emergency. Furthermore, I would suggest, and again, this is here me being really optimistic, um, which is not necessarily my nature. Uh, furthermore, I, you know, I suggested that from its particular positionality in Africa, uh, again, this, this rising middle class perhaps can see quite acutely the immense ecological and other ravages of consumer um, capitalism. Um, and again, may therefore have little choice to be or to become concerned again with the ethics and the sustainability of capitalism. Because the fact is that in Africa, as in the Global South more broadly, uh, we see and suffer these ravages quite closely. They're not merely theoretical uh, or, you know, things that we see on the in the media. Uh, so to give a quick example, in Lagos, for example, which is where I come from and where I also research, um, in even the most elite of neighborhoods, we are essentially drowning in garbage. You know, the afterlife of not only our own consumption, but other people's consumption too. So again, the cost of consumption is quite sort of visible to us in a certain way. Um, but very briefly, I want to suggest, as many other researchers and activists also have, um, that in its current dominant configuration, the very notion of ethical consumption demands critical interrogation and reflection. Um, so as one scholar, Stacey Thompson, argues, the notion that we can consume ethically today, that we can exercise such choice as consumers without more fundamental and radical change to socioeconomic and geopolitical structures, that notion itself is a happy and very much ideological one. Um, it's a promise, it's a pitch about capitalism by capitalism itself. It's marketing, you could say. Um, it allows, or I mean we could argue, and I would argue, it allows fundamentally unethical, exploitative, rapacious, and environmentally destructive processes of production, extraction, accumulation, and so on to continue uh, to rumble on while consumers, or again all of us, um, are exhorted and invited uh, to not only try and do better or try and buy better, but to do so individually. So to paraphrase another scholar, Sam Binkley, uh, he argues that in its highly individualized and actually highly consumerist form, the logic or rationality of ethical consumption makes no appeal to the market's exterior. So in other words, it, it doesn't it doesn't point us to a place or possibility outside capitalism itself. Rather, it draws distinctions between categories of commodities that are avail available to us or on offer uh, on the market or within the market itself. So, for instance, distinctions between fair trade coffee and other other coffee, 
uh, unfair traded coffee, we might call it, or regular coffee, um, or organic, pro organic produce, and again, non-organic, non and so on. And then again, from, with those choices, we are then invited again as individual consumers to essentially make the right choice. So my suggestion, and again, it's not only my suggestion, it's a well-argued suggestion, is that ethical consumption in a fundamentally unethical system is clearly not the fix, or is not, simply not the fix. Um, so in saying this, I'm not suggesting that we therefore should stop trying to consume ethically, uh, trying to make the most ethical choices from the options that are available to us as individual consum consumers. Um, also trying to make, also recognizing, of course, that ethical consumption is, for the most part, is actually quite expensive. Again, reg relative to the more kind of regular commodities that we, we see in the marketplace. Um, so again, in terms of what we should continue doing, I, I'm not arguing that we should stop or not continue trying to consume as ethically as possible. Um, so if we already do so, I would say that we should continue. But what I want to suggest is that we must stop thinking or telling ourselves, if we do, uh, that that is good enough, right? Again, particularly for us as at the individual level. We also must stop telling ourselves, if we do, that that is simply all that we can do, right? Again, is to sort of exercise the best choices on the marketplace. Um, to quote Stacey Thompson again, reflecting on her own personal consumption and reflecting on the fact that as much as possible she does try to consume ethically, she says, quote, what strikes me as troubling is the possibility that I accept my small acts of consumption as ethical in lieu of, of something more systematic, in, in lieu of more systematic or communal action merely because the former allows me to do something and, again, to feel a certain way that one is a good person. Um, so I want to suggest that we must not accept this troubling possibility. What we must do, so what we must start, I think, or continue if we are already doing this, is precisely engage in systematic and communal action, or in a word, politics, um, to radically reimagine and refashion more just, more ethical, and more sustainable ways of living, laboring, producing, and, yes, consuming too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Florian. I'm studying, actually, political influence and political activism. So thank you very much for the brief, Simon. It's, very, it's actually an intriguing uh, topic, I think, to talk about. So um, I wanted to start with a question to the audience, actually. So again, just put your hands up in case this applies to you. Who of you has watched uh, some of the Super Tuesday, um, basically, uh, results come in last week? Yeah, I'm guilty, too. So congratulations. Um, you are a political hobbyist. Um, <laughs> this is not my own term. It's actually a term by uh, Ethan Hirsch. And uh, he describes, basically, political hobbyists as people who enjoy politics as other people enjoy sports. Right? I mean, like, so uh, they enjoy it or consume it for entertainment purposes. Often they're highly cognitively engaged, they know a lot about it, but they don't really change anything. Right. Um, as I said, so most of the things I will talk about, you know, like that we should, should stop doing, I'm guilty of myself. Right? Um, so what I would propose that we should stop doing is treating politics as a pastime, as entertainment, essentially. And start doing politics, actually. Yeah? Start engaging. And that's much harder in many ways. Now, um, when we think about what we could be doing, right? I mean, like one of the things that strikes me as obvious is uh, we should actually be engaging with people who disagree with us. And that's very hard. Right? It's not easy, especially if they're family and friends. Um, 
That is because I think uh, we have shown or we think that actually this type of intimate relationships, they can withstand quite a bit of political disagreement and argument. Yeah, only in very, very few cases would those relationships actually break because you disagree or you engage politically even if you have different points of view. Um, so let, let me give you some empirical evidence on, on why, why I think that that's a good idea. So a couple of years ago, I uh, ran an experiment with a Labour candidate. Um, she was running for parliament uh, in a southern seat, and um, she wanted to contact conservative voters. Yeah, so basically people in the constituency she knew were voting for the conservative party. And what she wanted to do is basically she wrote those letters, they're handwritten by herself, uh, introducing herself as a candidate, and um, then basically um, inviting people to get to know her. The difference between the two letters, you won't see it now, but you'll, you'll see it here, was actually that one letter was framed as uh, a listen, an invitation to, for her basically to listen to the constituent. So it was like, I, I'd love to meet and listen to what you want from your new MP. Was framed as a, as a listening exercise, while the other letter was framed as a discussion exercise. It was kind of let's discuss about politics, let's discuss about the issues. Which letter do you think was more effective? Right. First one, yeah. This was, yeah, the results. So um, this was actually a randomized control trial. So you had a randomly assigned control group. Nobody, they didn't get any of the letters. Um, you had a letter basically that had the discussion frame and a letter that had the listening frame. Now, afterwards, I recorded voting intentions for the candidate in all of the groups. And what you see is basically that about 17% of people in the control group said that they would vote for her, about 90% in the basically discussion letter group, and 37% in the uh, listening group. Yeah, so what's the takeaway of that? We think, well, offer to listen to people. And... And now I'm extending basically this line of argument also to include others' research. This is the research by Josh Keller and David Brookman. Uh, what they find in, this, in different experiments are that it really works if you create a non-judgmental context. Yeah? And basically you invite people to exchange narratives. Yeah? You invite them to actually explain for why they're holding the type of views that they're holding. Again, this is difficult, right? It's uh, sometimes tough and it requires a lot of patience. Yeah? But it works. Yeah, we have shown that this can actually work. Now, there's some good news. The good news is that um, so I've also been working with political parties, um, and they are very concerned that if they talk to people who don't support them initially, then they will just mobilize those voters, and they will keep on voting for the party that they were always voting for. Right? I mean, so basically, you kind of get votes you know, like for, for the opposition. And we don't really find that to be the case. Yeah, so in, again, these are field experiments. We had canvases, you know, labor canvases and conservative canvases in two different studies. Uh, go to the doorstep and talk to voters who we knew were voting for, the different, for different parties initially. And what we find is basically in the worst case, nothing happens. Yeah, but this idea that you could kind of counter-mobilize voters or that these type of contexts or, you know, like attempts at kind of persuasion backfire, these instances are actually very rare, yeah, empirically speaking. So what else could you do? So if you actually agree with somebody, um, take them along to a meeting, take them to a protest, um, encourage them to run for office. Right? Humans are really, in, in my opinion, um, they, are, they are social beings. Right? And we are more likely to do something if, if others are also doing it. Yeah, so if you ask, basically, or if you're asking to take a friend along, then this friend will be more likely to come 
then if you just basically send them a text message and basically communicate the date of that event, for instance. So I think eventually I really want to say, you know, if, if you really want to change the world, run for office, right? And again, that's, that's tough. Is this your campaign? It's, <laughs> no worries, I'm not going to run for office, but you should. <laughs> or encourage a friend to do it, right? I mean, like, who you, who you think would make a good, um, a good MP. Now, um, I'm going to leave you with Barack Obama, uh, so don't boo vote. Uh, I'll actually change it a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, in reference to, like, my American friends, you know, he can walk and chew gum at the same time. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's good to boo and to let off steam, I think, but don't forget about the voting. Thanks. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, so tonight, the thing I want to uh, propose that we can all start doing to make the world a better place is pretty simple, actually. Uh, it's just to question meritocracy, to interrogate the meritocratic assumptions that configure how nearly all societies uh, make sense of who gets ahead and who does not. Why? Well, because from my research at least, you're probably starting to realise that tonight is really an opportunity for uh, academic self-promotion. Uh, from my research, uh, it turns out uh, meritocracy is in many ways a myth. In contemporary Britain, for example, it quite literally pays to be privileged. Examining over 100,000 people in Britain's labour force survey, we found that even when those from working-class backgrounds are successful in entering the country's elite occupations, they go on to earn, on average, about £6,500 less, about 16% less than their colleagues in the same jobs uh, whose parents did middle-class professional and managerial jobs. A gap, I should say, that is further exacerbated for women and ethnic minorities from working-class backgrounds. And importantly, this class pay gap can't be explained away by conventional indicators of merit. Even when we compare those from different backgrounds with similar levels of educational attainment, who work the same hours, who have the same level of training, experience, we still find that the privileged earn significantly more. Which brings me neatly onto what we should stop doing. Um, we need to stop, or I think at least pause for reflection, when attributing our own successes to talent and hard work. <laughs> to understand the class ceiling that I found, I went on to interview 175 people in elite occupations, and when asked directly, the vast majority, and particularly those from privileged backgrounds, argued that their career progression had rested decisively on merit. Yet our analysis of these people's actual career trajectories found uh, something quite different. That Actually, class privilege had often provided a very powerful following wind throughout their careers. This was often about the insulation provided by the bank of mum and dad, of being able to take risks, move to London, buy property, all with the help of family money. It was often about a culture of informal sponsorship in our elite occupations, where senior individuals tend to take younger staff under their wing and often operating beneath formal mechanisms, fast-track their career, but crucially tend to establish relationships with those who they tend to feel a kind of cultural affinity for, which very often means those from privileged backgrounds. And sometimes it's about what we call the misrecognition of merit, the way in which fairly arbitrary behavioural codes relating to dress, accent, taste, self-presentation, 
tend to govern who is seen to fit, who feels like management material, uh, and often reflects the historical legacy of a largely privileged white male majority who over time have been able to embed, even institutionalize, their own ideas about the right way to be in the workplace. One of the problems with fetishizing meritocracy is it makes it very hard, actually quite threatening, to acknowledge these kinds of privileges. Instead, people often compete to tell an upward story, to publicly proclaim their humble origins, often stretching back to their grandparents, their great-grandparents, even beyond to do so. For example, you might be interested to know that over 60% of people in the UK subjectively identify as working class, even though only about 30% actually come from objective working class origins. One of the reasons for downplaying this privilege, I believe, or this downplaying of privilege, is the kind of insidious ways that meritocratic discourses compel us to legitimate our own successes in terms of just desert and bat away any sense that our achievements may have been scaffolded by other forces. Why can't we be more honest and reflective about our privileges? All of us have them, myself very much included. And if we were to acknowledge them more readily um, and more in public, I believe this would help us to have a more accurate and honest conversation about how life outcomes are really being achieved. This leads me to what we need to continue doing which I'm afraid is a bit parochial and British. We're obsessed with class, we often derisively say to ourselves in this country. Well, I say perhaps unpopularly, that's a good thing. Let's keep shining a light on how powerfully class shapes outcomes in this country. Let's continue being obsessed. And here's a few concrete ways we might keep up the infatuation in policy terms. First, let's start properly measuring people's class backgrounds in the workplace in the same way as we do for other areas of diversity. Let's see where precisely the class ceiling is and isn't a problem. Many organisations, to be fair, are already starting to do this, but many others, like the LSE, for example, (laughs) and indeed academia in general, are a long way behind. Second, let's go a step further. Let's make class origin a protected characteristic. And then by doing that, let's be even bolder and mandate that all companies publish their class pay gap, just as they do now their gender pay gap. This might not be a panacea for addressing inequality, but it's certainly one effective way of calling employers to account. I should say I'm not saying there's no such thing as talent, uh, or that success is unrelated to skill or effort. My key point really is that the identification of merit uh, is often intertwined with the way merit is executed, how it's facilitated, and who the decision-makers are who recognise it. And when the following wind of privilege is misread as merit, this leads those who have been fortunate to believe that they have earned it on their own... Sorry, it leads those who have been fortunate to believe they've earned it on their own and those less fortunate to blame themselves. I hope that by shedding light on the ways in which merit is at best an insufficient explanation for career success at the top, we can raise wider questions about the legitimacy of an economic system that too often allocates profoundly unequal rewards based on the accident of social origin. One thing you've learned, LSE academics really do keep to time. This is quite amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. <laughs> um, okay. So-
So I'm going to talk about imagining uh, our future uh, and the beauty of data. So the first question I have for you is, have you heard of Jon Snow? <laughs> um, not that Jon Snow, sorry. <laughs> Uh, this Jon Snow, not. <laughs> so to tell the story, I'm going to go back or kind of let you go back to um, around 200 years ago to uh, 19, uh, sorry, 1850s to London. And actually at that time, it was uh, on some sense, it was a similar time in London as it is now. So it was a lot of mass hysteria because it was uh, an outbreak, an outbreak of a contagious disease, cholera. And our John Snow was uh, then a very young uh, physician who obviously wanted to help this uh, cholera outbreak. And a bit differently than other people, which was to have a lot of fear and hysteria, what he did uh, that was innovative, he started recording data. So he recorded data on every single person who died, where they died, where they lived, what water they drank, which school they went to, and what they were eating. And he basically kind of created this first geospatial maps of the death and mortality rates. Um, and he started studying this in, in this way, starting to analyze data. And what he actually saw that uh, people, so in that time, cholera was thought to be kind of a bad air disease, which meant that it was spread through air. That's what most people thought. What he started hypothesizing that actually cholera was being spread through water. And how he got to this conclusion is that he exploited kind of a change in where um, there was two water companies, Lambeth, which we see kind of, I think, in you see it probably in red, and um, Walksall and Southwark. It took me a few years to pronounce Southwark. <laughs> um, he found that when Lambeth moved its uh, water stream to upstream and started kind of having different water, the mortality rate of people who were living in the Lambeth area dropped significantly. So this is the first analysis of, of kind of epidemiological data. So when in 1853 there was another cholera outbreak in London, now this is a map of, of Soho, he did what he learned to do. So he started again plotting kind of everywhere where kind of in red dots where the people died. And he started kind of connecting it, being convinced that it was water to different wells. And he found that the center was this broad street well. And finally, he actually managed to convince the authorities to uh, stop uh, using that well. So it was closed. And very soon after, actually, the cholera outbreak in London stopped. So I think this is one of the examples, kind of a very old example of how the kind of the use and the beauty of data. And I think we should start, we should continue using uh, this data. So there's a few reasons why. I think in the first instant, uh, data allows us to uncover kind of unexpected patterns and causes. Okay, so I work on, on crime research and there is a big, there was a big debate that in the US, for example, violent crime was kind of at its peak in the early 90s, similar to as it is actually here now but then dropped to half of its half of its rate within a decade and kind of crime researchers went back to analyze this and actually like the typical things you would think about such as a growing economy or innovative police strategies weren't the cause of that so data showed that it was actually legalizing abortion in 1973 in the supreme court judgment um, of uh, Wade versus Roe and legalizing abortion that later on actually re uh, led these crime rates to, to drop significantly because uh, families that were disadvantaged were able to kind of not anymore have these unborn children that, were that would be likely to pursue criminal behavior. 
another reason why I think uh, AI kind of and AI and data uh, makes the world a better place is it allows us to basically use algorithms for kind of shaping the world in a better place. There's a plethora of examples. I'm going to touch upon some. But if you look at medical research, kind of now we're able to analyze millions and millions of combinations of genes and try to figure out kind of which algorithms through machine learning are, are causing kind of which gene collections are causing some diseases and prevent them much earlier on. Another thing kind of in the spirit of self-promotion, uh, obviously injustice, for example, and domestic abuse, there is a lot of potential. So we know that one quarter of all violence in the UK is due to the, is kind of domestic violence. So what we do actually with me and a, a group of researchers at CEP, we try to predict for which couples violence is going to occur within a year with the aim that kind of UK police forces better target those couples that are likely to, to occur violence with. And a third fact why data is really useful, and I think that's specifically relevant today, is that it kind of facts beat fake news. And I think there's no other way, almost no other way of beating fake news but through facts. Okay, so on the one hand, on the left-hand side, we have hopefully soon uh, to be elected, not the president of the United States, Trump, who has this very sensationalist populist narrative of, for example, connecting in a lot of his posts, connecting uh, criminality and um, illegal or generally migration. However, on the, one on the other hand, kind of on the right-hand side, if you, do, if you look at any research in econometrics, economics, there's absolutely no evidence that there is a, a link, a causal link between crime, uh, between immigration and crime. Okay, so my kind of, in general, is try as, as you go from here, don't read the headlines. Headlines tend to be very sensationalist. They tend to kind of make you click on and try to read the data behind it. Uh, what do we need to start thinking about? What I do think we need to start thinking about is what AI and data brings with it and what are the challenges. So I'm going to quote, and I think, an amazing researcher, Joy Volanvini, who kind of finds this algorithmic bias uh, in programs that, uh, that do facial recognition. So if you look at the main uh, kind of algorithms that find facial recognition, she finds that there is kind of um, a reinforcement of bias in kind of recognizing faces against uh, women and against ethnic minorities. So if you compare prediction rates between a white man and a black woman, it's almost kind of a difference of 34.4%. That's massive if you think about that this algorithms and software is going to be used in, in everywhere, in CCTV, in, in crime, and so on. So I think the main thing here is when we think about the future is really to think about having very inclusive training sets. So if we have a very kind of inclusive training sets, which means think about kind of the invisible data and think about the, the gender and ethnicity uh, gaps, this is likely to not occur. So there's a lot of, for example, cases where gender gaps are present in data specifically, for example. We know that a lot of uh, safety regulations in cars are optimized, for example, for a median man rather than a median human. Or, or for example, like audio equipment as well assumes that you have to have trousers. So a lot of technologies actually kind of, there's a gap to it. And we as well need to become uh, inclusive researchers when we think about problems like that. Um, what we need to do is we need to stop taking for granted uh, the value of our data. And as kind of a favorite economist saying, there is no free lunch. Um, so I don't know, I have a question for you. So how many of you have used some um, like app, say City Mapper or Google Maps or Uber to, to get here? 
most of you. Um, I have as well, okay? Even though I come to LSE all the time, every day almost, you want to see kind of where you're going. So what you probably did is use a free app or a free service, but what you did is you traded your data. And I think that's something that's really important to think about. And the, the question is, are you happy with the compensation that you got uh, with this service that got you to LSE in this case? Are you happy if you knew that they sold your data to kind of have specific advertising of clothing on your social media? Are you happy if your data is sold to a political party uh, to kind of try to use fake news to influence your ideology? I think these are all, uh, these are all questions that you kind of have to answer for yourself, but I think it's, a, it's the right time to start asking what we're trading off with data. And also I think kind of to use a saying which is generally vote with your feet, but vote with your clicks. So try to support actually the apps by paying for them rather than trading your data if you believe what they're doing and kind of think about when you accept all cookies uh, what you're actually doing. Um, and that's it. Thank you very much. All right, thanks. So um, I've been tasked with thinking tonight about what one thing individuals should be doing about climate change. What one action can each of us take to stem the climate crisis? This is a pretty huge one, right? And it's one you've actually probably heard a lot about in your daily life. So you probably have some ideas about what I might tell you that you need to start or stop doing for the environment. So you might expect me to tell you to stop being so wasteful and to start uh, remembering to bring your keep cup. You might think that I'm going to say that uh, you need to eat less meat and maybe even go vegan. Industrial livestock production certainly is a major contributor to global carbon emissions. Here's a big one. Maybe you think I'm going to tell you to stop flying. Um, certainly air travel is also a major contributor to emissions. And here's another one that we're hearing more and more about. You might think I'm going to tell you not to have kids to prevent future generations of carbon emissions. Um, so given that you already have these preconceptions of what you maybe should or should not be doing about climate change, you may or may not be happy to hear that none of these are the thing that I think is the most impactful thing that humans can be doing about climate change. I mean, by all means, keep using your keep cup. I personally am quite attached to mine. Um, but the, the problem with these consumer and lifestyle choices is that they don't address the systemic drivers of the climate crisis. Climate change is the result of fundamental problems with our political and economic systems. That means it must be addressed systemically and not through the aggregate effects of individual consumer choices. Individual consumption habits are not the problem. So here's the thing that I propose individuals who are concerned about climate change should do. Focus on systems and not on yourself. What that means is taking a close look at the communities and institutions that you are a part of thinking carefully about how they need to be transformed, and then considering what role you can play in that transformation. 
Thinking systemically also means considering how climate change is bound up with all of the other problems that you have heard about this evening. For example, the same economic system that gave you deep and systemic inequality also gave you the climate crisis. And inequality also drives climate change. The negative impacts of climate change are gendered, they are racialized, and these impacts are being and will be unequally distributed. So when you're thinking about addressing climate change at a systemic level, don't just think about carbon emissions. Think about these questions of equality and how they in turn shape our climate changed future. So the great thing about this is that there's never been a better time to act for systemic transformation to impact climate change. There are all sorts of things that you could do. Some examples include joining a protest against climate change. If you haven't already done so, probably you've been stuck in traffic behind one in London in the last year or so. They're happening all the time now. Um, you could volunteer to support a political candidate who's serious about addressing climate change at a systemic level. Um, you might get involved in a campaign concerned with transforming our energy systems. For example, a movement against fracking. These strategies are not only important because they address systemic concerns, but also because they have results. Just last week, a coalition of social movement and legal advocacy groups successfully halted the planned expansion of a third runway at Heathrow Airport that would have allowed 700 more planes a day to come through. It is because of these demands of these protesters that the government is being forced to take this historic action to mitigate carbon emissions. Similarly, corporations are also taking note of the climate protests. Last fall, at a panel on this very stage about climate activism, James Murray, the founder and editor of Business Green, said that carbon intensive companies are genuinely terrified of the school strikes because they threaten their social license to operate. Keep protesting, he said, it is having a major impact. Now, the thing about engaging in this kind of advocacy is that it is slower and it usually yields less visible results than individual consumption choices. It's gratifying for me to use my keep cup because I know that I've just saved a piece of garbage from going to a landfill. But what any scholar of social movements will tell you is that the value of protest should be measured not in the immediate results in terms of having its demands met. Instead, social movements are fundamental to our processes of social change. They shape our ideas, the ways we think about how the world could or ought to be, they shape the conditions of possibility for all other kinds of change. This work of demanding systemic change is happening right here at our own institution already. Last term, LSE students voted to declare a climate emergency in a large-scale expression of demand for this exact recognition of the deep systemic changes that are required by the climate crisis. These protests led by our own, our own students, in particular the LSE Climate Emergency Collective, have led to really deep and serious thinking at the highest levels of our institution about what meaningful climate action would mean for a university like the LSE and what our role as an institution um, could be in affecting deeper change in our social and economic systems. 
partly in response to these demands of our students. The school is developing a new sustainable LSE strategic plan through consultation with all members of our community. Now, I know that some of these student organizers have felt disillusioned by the university's failure to declare a climate emergency. And here's what I have to say to them. Don't give up. This institution needs your voices, and the responses that we're seeing now indicates how successful your movement has already been. The rest of us can take their example in thinking about how we want to pursue systemic change ourselves within this institution and beyond it. We need to think big. The climate crisis demands that we think beyond ourselves. Thank you. Okay, let's open it up to the audience. Let's take, I'm going to take questions or comments in batches of three. Um, see a woman over here in the corner? I think there's a microphone coming around. Do we have two roving mics or just one? Do you have a roving mic? Over in the, the woman standing up down here, please, thanks. Hello, um, thank you very much. My name's Sandra. I'm a communications specialist, I suppose. Uh, Ria, my question's to you. When I saw your slide headline, fact beat fake news, I was kind of astonished. And I, I, I suggest also, while you've got wonderful data that is being collected and showing unusual findings, as long as the population is not perceiving facts as primary and they are being subsumed to the belief systems and, and populism and propaganda, uh, it is going to be very hard for actual data to reach the population and help shape uh, the future. And obviously, facts are not beat, beating fake news at all at the moment. Uh, and I just wondered what you had to say about making sure they are getting to the population. Up here in the middle. Thank you to all the presenters. My name is Rob Telling, E.J. Paley, and I'm based at the University of Oxford. Sam, thank you for your presentation. I was particularly intrigued um, with the data and wanting to know more about whether or not there are specific groups that invoked meritocracy more than others. So, for instance, were white males more inclined to invoke meritocracy? Were men particularly more inclined to vote, invoke meritocracy? The reason I ask this question is because I've been in long-standing debates with uh, my friends of color about being very wary of promoting or celebrating firsthood if you're a person of color. So the fact that you're first, uh, a first person of color to accomplish something in the 21st century basically negates um, years of systemic inequality. So all those people who came before you who weren't first because of racism, because of sexism, because of all the other social qualifiers that you can think about, by celebrating firsthood in the, first, in the 21st century, persons of color may negate that whole history. So in terms of the data, what are you finding in terms of who's invoking meritocracy more than others? Great question. I saw one. Take one more. Yep, guy here. Um, thank you very much. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. My question follows on from the last few questions, but also all the presentations. Um, what distinction do you make between the word data and the word information? And do you, how do you take account how something is delivered? And if it's delivered by a person, 
what that person's body language tells you about the accuracy, limitations, possible biases in the information or indeed in the data. Thank you. What was, you didn't give us your name. What was your name? Sorry, uh, Ewan Grant. Okay, thank you very much. So let's start with your question to use uh, fake news. I think it was Ria, was it? Yeah. Um, is my microphone not here? Sorry. Um, so thank you for the question. I think it's a really good question, and I certainly don't have the full solution to that. I think there's going to – I think we – my first, I think, thinking around it is that we could, as a society, do much better from early on to try to kind of teach data and teach thinking about data and kind of teach maybe not data necessarily but factfulness. So I can recommend to everyone to uh, – it's a great book, like Factfulness, for example. It discusses a lot of these things and how we approach facts and how we approach thinking about it and what's kind of the role of media around it. So I think if we started teaching that, I think in the beginning, I think in the future, our generations might change. I also never think we can really kind of, if you think about kind of polarization, I don't think we can ever reach the extreme voter with fake news. I think that's extremely hard, but I think there's a lot of marginal people. And I think I'm as well sometimes kind of that I might read the headline rather than kind of really go and read the article and form my own opinion about it. And I think that's certainly something that we could take away from and try to be careful uh, about that. Um, yeah. Sam. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, great question. Um, and those, um, those reflections on firstness are, are fascinating. Um, I think in, in my work I would say Certainly, the, the, the sort of over-representation or the people who believe most firmly in meritocracy in terms of order of, uh, of kind of ordering beliefs of it, I'd say, you know, in my day to any way, it was those from privileged backgrounds, um, those who had been very successful, and then, you know, often flowing from that, um, you know, men uh, and white men, um, in, and I think the, th the thing about that <clears throat> is that often, you know, that those people feel most threatened by um, the concept of meritocracy not being in place, not being a reality, because it kind of questions the legitimacy of, of, of where they've got to. Um, I have a colleague... Uh, Dave O'Brien, who's, who's written actually a number of papers specifically on, on this issue in terms of, uh, and he identifies in a, in a study that looks actually more specifically at who believes in meritocracy, that it's white privileged men in, in an entire paper. In my data, is kind of more of something that I was kind of noticing qualitatively, not necessarily kind of measuring in that way. But uh, I think, you know, it, as I said, I think it's, it, it's something that um, in the current way that we set things up, um, people find incredibly um, threatening, and that's really unhelpful in a way. Yeah. So do any of the other panellists want to say anything about the question of information, uh, bias? Got anything for uh, social scientists, how you think about these things? Florian. Do you want to go? Um, uh, I don't really have a textbook answer for you. But I guess uh, the difference between uh, data and information, I guess data contain information. But uh, we would need to, you know, process and analyze data for, for it to actually, you know, like to be, to be able to kind of for it to reveal information to us, right? I mean, data can be pretty unstructured in that kind of sense. 
Um, yeah, so that would be my kind of intuitive take on it. Yeah, I'm sure maybe you have better um, better answer to the question. Any, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question about um, data versus information. I guess um, the the question that I think is more important to ask about. Um, how data is used is about basically how it's analyzed. So the, the question of delivery is important, yes, but also what data we choose to look at, um, how we choose to think about it, um, who gets to select what data should be drawn on, and then what decisions are made about that data. And so, um, I mean, when it comes to climate change, we have... I mean, honestly, basically all the information that we need about the physical impacts of climate change. The big question now is, what do we do about it? And those are questions that are profoundly political. They're not really questions about needing more numbers. Um, they're questions about these sort of political contestations, about like, okay, now that we have this information, what do we do about it? Timmy, you want to say anything on this question or any of the other questions that were raised there? Yeah, well, just something. I mean, this is actually just... It's not something that I just read the other day, and I think it sort of speaks to the first question and perhaps the, the third question a bit. Um, you know, the, the, the question about facts versus fake news and the question of who, who the voice is, as it were, or who the representative, representative of the information or data is. Um, so I don't know, people might have seen, I think there was an article, it was an opinion piece, uh, probably in The Guardian maybe the other day, that was saying, you know, referring to the ongoing coronavirus um, issue. And... You know, they were, the, the columnist was essentially arguing that, oh, look, we now, there's, there's a certain sense of like, oh, we actually need experts after all, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, here we have this, this very kind of real thing that is based on very real data and facts around which we need to have an honest and a rigorous and expert-led conversation as opposed to fake news, Donald Trump saying whatever it is that he's saying about what the real figures are and so on and so forth, you know? So maybe there's a certain, I mean, again, the, the columnist was suggesting that maybe there is a certain sort of shift that's ongoing, hopefully, where we come back to taking uh, data and research and rigor um, more seriously than we have perhaps in the last few years. I mean, this is a, you know, it's raised some interesting general questions about the social sciences. One thing that has worried me over the, the last decade in particular is a great skepticism towards the social science. science. We're all biased. We're all a bunch of progressive lefties, quite clearly, right? Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, we're just analyzing data to self-reinforce already uh, judgments or ideas or theories we already have. Uh, can we analyze information, whether it's quantitative data or qualitative information, can we analyze information in a non-biased way? All right, starting at that end, going along. <laughs> Florin. Should I start? Um, yeah, I think... It's important to make a distinction, really, uh, when you talk about, you know, you know be, there being, like, say, like a liberal bias in academia, for instance. That, I mean, it's different to uh, if you think about the questions that we are asking. And I think the questions that you are asking yourself as a researcher, you know, like, they, they might be value-driven. Yeah? I mean, like, it's, it's difficult, I think, to, to say that, you know, we're choosing our questions objectively, maybe. Um, or sometimes, you know, the world chooses the questions for us, right? I mean, like, because they're just, like, so important. Um, but then I think it is very important uh, for us to, you, you know, to be using methods and a methodology that can give us unbiased results. Right? So even if I'm you know, studying a question that I find interesting, 
Um, I think I, I think it is very important that we apply methods that can give us answers that we don't like huh? as researchers. And then I feel, as researchers, we have an obligation to report those results yeah? and, to, and, 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 th and then to engage with it. I would be very skeptical of, say, research that always gets the results, you know, like that aligns with people's priors, personally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. I have to be optimistic on that. Um, I think there are different ways. I agree that I think automatically the questions that we ask are somehow biased to our interests, which might be biased to our ideologies. Uh, but I, I think that researchers can go beyond that. I think, for example, like in randomized control trials, you have to report what you're going to do in advance and report the hypothesis in advance. But you are obliged to actually go back and test these and find. And if you find something else, you, you kind of have to show that. So I think there is also standards that we're now implementing to address these issues. Um, yeah. Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I suppose I would think of it, I mean, similar to what Florian was saying in a couple of ways, um, we, we have a kind of positionality that informs our research questions that we ask, and I suppose as part of the research process... Uh, we should we should think and actually often we even write about that positionality. Um, however, you know the point of a of a kind of rigorous methodological training, um, and particularly I would say the ability to formulate good research questions, research questions that are actually questions, and um, the and this is what I always say to my students, where you kind of go into the process of doing research. Um, with the with the possibility of being surprised, right? Um, and I think that, that that's that's really where where the key element here is in terms of being able to counteract that those kinds of charges against us. Um, and personally, you know, from from you know that's that's that surprise is is really what makes uh, research exciting. And actually, if it was just a matter of going out and proving all your preconsumptions, then, you know, it's not, not very interesting activity, to be honest. Tasha, would you want anything? I mean, I believe that our knowledge is shaped by the preoccupations that we bring to it. And so um, if, you, if what you mean by bias, if it's possible to be unbiased, meaning that we could um, produce any knowledge that wasn't shaped by those preoccupations, then my answer no. is no. <laughs> um, but I, I certainly, in my own research, am um, open to being surprised. And when I am surprised, I certainly report on it. Um, but I think that we need to stop pretending <coughs> that... Um, any research, any kind of qualitative or quantitative research is not shaped by those preconceptions. Simi? Yes, uh, so I would say, I mean, I think part of the answer to the question is obviously disciplinary. I mean, so apart from our sort of positionality in terms of our personal positionalities, I think it's also about the kind of fields um, in which we are, disciplinary fields in which we we're located and the kind of work that we do. So, for instance, I do qualitative work, and in particular, I do discourse analysis. So, you know, my, re my research and my approach in terms of methodology is very much concerned with meaning and meaning-making, and the method is about 
the analytic method is about uh, deconstructing and reconstructing meaning that's made. And so therefore it is necessarily subjective and it is necessarily about interpretation. Um, and what I try to say to students, because I, I, you know, I teach discourse analysis workshops and so on, and students often find it quite um, discomforting, I think, to, you know, I'm, a few weeks ago, I taught a workshop, and the student said, "Oh my God, I'm never going to believe anything I read again." You know, mm -hmm. in any academic, because mm -hmm. it's all just like it's all just bias and it's all subjective. And mm -hmm. I said, "Well, no, I think it's an my my view is that it's an argument. We make arguments. We don't. I think if you're doing that kind of work, we're not making truth claims. We're making arguments, and then it's a matter of trying to substantiate the argument. And the rigor is in tr sort of trying to use the evidence and the data." To, to back up the argument, as opposed to saying this is the truth. Great, okay, so some pluralism on the panel here. Okay, let's open it up for another round. <laughs> Lots of, but maybe I'll take a few more here. So there's a guy in the middle here, down the front. Down, keep going down, keep going down, blue shirt in the middle. <laughs> no, in front of him. <laughs> All right, you ask your question, you've got a mic. Oh, fine, thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, continuing on the uh, What was question. your name? Oh, Francis, uh, okay. continuing on the uh, question about the uh, possibility of unbiased uh, data analysis, and I want to explore its relation with political neutrality. We know that at the moment the, there's row about, in, about how the UK civil service is going to work with its new administration, which, which argue is going to be heavily influenced by a certain advisor, which shall remain nameless. And I wonder if, the, if what you mentioned about the that it's almost impossible to give all those contests that to, to have unbiased data analysis, whether that means the uh, eroding or the going forward is not feasible of the political neutrality and how does it impact you know, Thank you very the much. political process. Okay, and I saw a woman just there in the yellow jumper. <laughs> Hello, yeah, my name is Juliet, and there's a question for Dr. Simidelli. Um, I'm really interested in your feedback on the reaction um, to your work by the African elite, and I say that in the context of someone who lives in the diaspora, and um, and also taking your point about meaning and the meaning of those consume, you know, consumable products that people consume. Um, when I go back to East Africa where I'm from, it's quite difficult to sort of explain to family members that I'm choosing to take a bicycle to the local market because the idea is I'm educated, I'm a business owner, I should obviously take a car and a driver and have someone pick you know, my stuff for me. And the meaning there is based on the fact that those who came before us, our great-grandparents, worked so hard so we can have the opportunity to, get to, to buy and purchase these, at these things. So it's, I'm really interested in yeah, what, what, what you found. Okay, a guy just in, down here? Yep. Hi, um, my name is Robert. I have a local government background. Um, just wanted to mention to Sam, I've got your book on my bookshelf. I haven't had time to read it yet. Um, you don't need to now. I just, I just wanted to just ask you. I just wanted to ask you a question um, related to um, equality. Um, do you feel that the un just you looking at the university system itself? Do you think that the university system is partially to blame because we have? hundreds of thousands of graduates coming out, uh, graduating every year, and we don't have the equivalent number of graduate jobs. That's, that's one question. And for example, you could also use law as an example too. And also, um, as a subset to that question as well, uh, there are complaints from black academics that they don't get ten tenure in universities. What's your take on that? Okay, let's take a few more. Down, down here. I'll come over this side next round. Okay, down the front here. 
good evening, everyone. My name is Evelina. I'm an, actually an LSE student. Um, thank you so much to all the panelists. It's been great having and like hearing about your research. Uh, my question is particularly about um, the, uh, the research that Rio is doing. Um, because you technically in your research bring data to the police. Um, so that's a very interesting way that a researcher is being able to bring data to an actual public office. So how are you managing to um, merge that gap that usually researchers um, do not, are not able to communicate their data and findings to the public officials? Um, and what is your insight in doing that and maybe recommendations? And should academics actually be more proactive and try to um, not distance their research and put it out there, but actually actively give it out to like um, politicians and public sector um, organizations or NGOs and businesses? Thank you. Okay. Maybe one more. And we got five. Right just behind you there. Yeah. Hi, Arunav Das. Um, question for Dr. Simi. Um, is there a decision choice conflict between economic cost um, and the moral compass of making those ethical uh, consumerism kind of choices? And does that vary between developed and developing economies? Uh, where I'm going with this question is if the cost, economic cost of making those choices is higher than the alternatives, um, what, what does the research show in this field? What kind of decisions do people make uh, considering the cost versus the moral compass? Thank you. Okay, we've got a lot of stuff here. Why don't we start with you, Simi? A couple to you there. Okay, okay so if I'll respond to the first question that was posed to me directly. Um, so I think much as you were beginning to describe from your own personal experience, I think um, what I found in my research, so, I mean, I didn't say very much about the research, but it was more specific, it was, it was specifically on what I called elite um, young women in Lagos who consume in a, what I call a spectacular sort of style, right? So it was very much about femininity as well. Um, and what I found, or what I argue in my work, is that um, these women very much talked about themselves and talked about their, their consumer and other practices as, uh, as very much about empowerment, so, but in this case, gendered empowerment. So this idea of being a powerful woman, being able to sort of make your own choices, uh, very much an emphasis on, you know, I pay for everything by myself. That's also a mark of empowerment and so on. Um, and so there was very much this idea of, you know, I'm different from other kinds of women. I'm more sort of progressive. I'm more ahead. I'm more powerful and so on. Um, and I think, and I mean, I think this also relates to the second question. I think certainly in the African context, but again, probably more widely, um, and again, maybe in, in contexts where there is this idea of a rising kind of consuming class, I think consumption very much comes to mean and to represent um, progress and you know, ideas of the future. And um, it becomes also aspirational or is aspirational for other people who are not necessarily able to participate in it. Um, in terms of the, the second question, I, I think if I understood it, the question is about how do people weigh up the economic versus moral cost of, of certain kinds of consumption? I mean, I think, you know, you, you asked the question about the global south, the developing world, but I think it's still very, it's also very much applies here. You know, as I said very briefly, um, it's more expensive to buy, you know, fair trade coffee or organic, whatever it is. You know, there, there is certainly a, a, an economic or a price differential. Um, I mean, I think the reality is that people... I mean, I think the literature shows, I mean, Sam may also know some of this, uh, I mean, in the sense that it's, it's much more of a sociological literature, but I think um, 
ethical consumption, again, even in the global north, is very much a sort of middle class or upper middle class sort of concern. Luxury and, good. Yeah, it's a luxury good, and it also, again, becomes a certain sort of signifier, a certain sort of sign of being a certain type. You mean you um, don't have a Tesla? Uh, no, no, exactly. You know, or like, oh, you buy that, or you know, don't you know, you know, why, why not this other sort of more, again, this sort of fairer product? Um, so yeah, I think there is. I mean, obviously there is a trade-off, right? And so part of what I tried to argue in in that talk that I gave was again this idea that will the rising African class consume more ethically? My, as I said, my gut reaction was no, of course not, right? Except if, as I said, perhaps ethical, so-called ethical consumption becomes increasingly just the norm more generally and then maybe becomes more affordable if it becomes more of a sort of mass kind of mode of consumption. Thank you. Uh, Ria, I'm going to come to you next. Um, data and public, uh, do you feel confident to advise police on, on <laughs> yes, of course. going into, you know, is, is, um, isn't this sort of big brother? You've done the data analysis, this is the couple you need to go and no, check no, because no, they're, no, they're no. going to, because he's going to punch her? <laughs> no. Um, is there a movie about that? It is Minority Report, right. yeah. And I think that's the sort of conversation that universities ought to be having, not about how do we, you know, because then eventually they'll get to the senior positions, but, but so it's a generational change that needs to happen. Any, any of you guys want to say anything about your disciplines or have you noticed any difference? You've been to other universities coming to LSE. Does it feel any different, any worse, any better? Or, I mean, I, mean I, I, think that, um, I think that it's true that it needs to start much earlier and I, I think that Sam's work really speaks to this. Yeah. I mean, when we get up, you know, an applicant pool for a, for a job in the geography department, also largely white men, yeah. and... Um, I'm the director of our doctoral program, and the same is actually also true for PhD applications. And so I think, you know, who are we admitting to our undergraduate programs? How are we, um, you know, encouraging those students to continue in professions like academia? Um, I mean, it starts, you know, it starts a long time before we're looking at, you know, whether any of us is going to be promoted, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I mean, I think that that proves that it's not a meritocracy. But are, I mean, I'm going to ask Sam this question, which is related from this. I mean, I was at a conference. One thing I get to do in my job is travel around to conferences of other academic leaders, which are a terrible thing to do. But, but um, there's always a debate about are universities part of the problem, not part of the solution now? I mean, this is, we're getting hit by, you know, LSE, we represent everything that's, bad now. We're social scientists. We're based in London. We're kind of a bunch of lefties. And, you know, this, we're the epitome of everything this country sort of doesn't like at the moment. Um, we're, getting a, we're getting it in the neck, probably quite rightly, for, for, for lots of reasons. Um, uh, and uh, David Goodhart's just written this book, and he claims that, you know, too many people are going to university. The world was a better place when only 15 or 20 percent went to university because what universities do is they pull people away from their local communities and, and they don't return back. I'm from a small town in Sussex from a working class background. I would never go back. But I pointed out to David Goodhart, I wouldn't have gone to university under his formula. And thank you very much, David. If only 15 percent had gone to university, I wouldn't have gone. And look where I ended up now. But I mean, so are universities part of the problem or part of the solution or what is it, Sam? What's your, from your kind of research? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful gatekeeper at the LSE asking me the question. Um, uh, no, I, I mean, I, it's, that's such a big and complex question. And I sort of, I, I feel like the safest territory is to talk about the things that I 
really know and understand. And I mean, the only thing I would say, I mean, it was partly what you were saying before, Simon, that I'd probably slightly push back on is just this, this kind of pipeline generational issue. That presupposes that the processes within universities yes. are, are meritocratic and, and fair. Um, and, you know, certainly what I found going inside, you know, big multinational county firm, a, a television channel, an architecture practice was that it, those processes weren't necessarily fair in terms of who, who progresses. And, and so I think you have to think of it, you have to think about how, how, how people are, um, how, how their careers develop and, you know, how, how there are processes that affect that that aren't necessarily just about kind of pipe, a pipeline issue. Um, in terms of this bigger question, uh, uh, in terms of what what universities are doing, I mean, I think certainly, you know, I can parrot some statistics back at David Goodhart, for example, that show that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, when you look at people who have been upwardly socially mobile in the UK, um, they're most likely to actually have been upwardly socially mobile um, in the area they were brought up, um, which kind of goes against his thesis to some extent, although I think one of the things that then folds into the work that I do uh, on that is that you could argue that they, people get those kind of higher professional managerial jobs um, to some extent because they can't necessarily take up the more lucrative, the more powerful opportunities um, that they might do that are based here in London because of you know issues around around inequality and cl or advantages of class origin, but I mean you know our, our universities they're they're both right they're clearly they're clearly really important spaces for all sorts of things but but they are massively implicated in lots of the inequalities. Yes, okay. Let's take some Sorry. more questions. I think we've got time for one more round of questions from over this side. Yes, woman up here. Oh, okay. Thank Him you. First, and then um, hi, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong. I'm a photographer and an editor of an Instagram platform. This question is for Kasha, because one of your slides referred to the British Museum. So yesterday afternoon, I spent three hours at the BM's Troy exhibition. It's extraordinary. And this is not an ad for the BM. And when I came out, the poster reminded me that BP <laughs> is the lead sponsor. Now, of course, we all remembered about a month ago, the activist group BP, not BP, actually managed to infiltrate BM and occupy the Grey Court for the whole weekend. And even there was a Trojan horse in his courtyard. Extraordinary. I, I, I have two reflections. I thought if BP actually dropped, was dropped as a lead sponsor, and there was no corporate sponsorship, how much would a ticket cost? Instead of £20, would it have been £50, £60, £80 without the corporate sponsorship? And would the patrons be said, saying, I'm happy to pay that? Alternatively, you talked about systemic um, uh, view on climate change rather than personal changes. I thought, when are we going to see a socially responsible investment fund taking over to sponsoring such an expensive show that maybe we're talking systemic change? So I just want to hear your views. Thank you so much. Great question. Just in front of you here. Hi, my name is Tracy, and I'm a student here. And my question is for Dr. Foos. Um, so basically, you were talking about how we should endeavor to run for office um, and vote instead of just engaging in politics as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what you would suggest for people who live in 
quasi-democracies or under-authoritarian states who don't really have the option of um, engaging in electoral politics like the people who live in more, I guess, democratic states, um, and how, like, what kind of advice you would give them, these, pe- these people who are keen on enacting social states under these conditions, social change under these conditions? Fantastic question. Uh, let's keep coming on down. Um, I'm Nick Yao. I'm a visitor here between jobs. Um, the theory is simple. What we think decides what we do, and what we do decides what we have. But in some countries, they, the, the government uh, control the media, and um, the sharing of thinking is not easy. And in those countries, what can we do? Good question about media control. Then we'll take it to the right there. The woman behind, no, no, back there. Hi, um, my name is Daria. I work in consulting. Um, my question is to Sam. So um, companies, rec- well, not recently, but they've been imposing quotas on both the graduate level and on the board level. Um, and those quotas are to ensure that there's a diversity within the board or within the graduate intake. Do you think that helps solve the the issue, or do you think it's just it's more of a PR stunt from large corporations? Quite a few of us might have things to say about quotas because it affects a lot of dif- different areas of social science. But and then last question down here. Hello, my name is Christopher. I work at Microsoft. I have the same question for prof- uh, Professor Dosekun and Professor Paprocki, and the question is, what do you think about taxes? So, uh, Professor Tosekun, you mentioned the scenario of the poshest neighborhoods in cities in Nigeria having piles and piles of garbage on the outside, and this seems like a classic example of a negative consumption externality, that the private benefit is greater than the public benefit. You pay for the television, you don't have to pay for the garbage, kind of like smoking. There's a cost to the cigarettes, and there's a cost to the, well, the negative health um, consequences that occur afterwards. So what do you think about uh, consumption tax based on what people consume? So that reduces consumption. And similar, Professor Paprocki, what do you think about this concept of a tax that extends um, as a systemic action to, for example, airplane tickets or to food, that we're not paying for the price of the carbon that's emitted, we're only paying 10 pounds to fly from Stens to Warsaw, but what if that were actually reflected in the cost and it were 10 times as greater? Do you think that would influence individual decision-making enough um, that it would achieve, same, uh, say, the same level as uh, joining a protest? Great. Okay. Let's, a couple minutes. So keep the answers short. Kasha, a couple questions to you there. So. Yeah. So um, I haven't seen the, um, this exhibit at the British Museum. Um, I would be interested in hearing why you think that it is so important. Um, I mean, the British Museum is a major cultural institution that sanctions all sorts of terrible things, (laughs) if we're being honest. I mean, it's full of plundered artifacts from all over the colonized world, and the sponsorship by BP um, just sanctions the work of BP, which is why these people are protesting it. So um, I guess I don't think that it is necessary to to, um, support 
institutions that do things like that, and I think that part of this idea that we need to look into um, systemic uh, systemic ways of changing our institutions is to say, um, no, we won't. We won't allow our institutions to act like this anymore. And I'll just very quickly respond to this last question. Um, I believe in taxes. I believe in progressive, not um, regressive taxes. And I think that consumption is the wrong way to um, tax in order to deal with the climate crisis. I think that we should um, tax the wealthy. Simi. Taxes and consumption taxes? Yes, okay, so, but if I may also just start by just sort of replying to the first question, I mean, if I may, sure. uh, about the British Museum. I mean, I think the, the point that I, regardless of the specific institution and what its particular history is, I mean, I think I, what I would say is the idea of corporate sponsorship. I mean, we take it for granted now, but it's actually, if you take a longer historical view, it's actually a sort of fairly new idea in the sense that, so what I would say is, well, if it's a public institution, it should be publicly funded, would be my view. And, I mean, obviously, precisely funded through through taxes um, and through whatever sort of national wealth there is. Um, so, yes, in terms of the, the question on tax, um, I mean, I think the point that I was making about Lagos, about garbage, is it's less, it's less about saying the particular people or communities consume and therefore just sort of toss out the garbage or toss out the waste. I think in the Nigerian context, it's, actually, it's, it's a bigger problem. It's a problem of a fa- the failure of government, I would say, and of, of the state. So, I mean, again, my, my sort of suggestion and solution would be, again, a, about a more sort of systemic response, which is in that particular context, but also elsewhere, is about better governance, actually. Florian, I want to come to you about the, what should we do in authoritarian states? You know, I, I think it's, an, it's a really... Excellent question that you you've been asking, right? Um, and um, yeah, talking about my probably my own biases. I mean, like most of my uh, research is in in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, right? Um, but I think what, what you can do, I think if if it's a truly kind of authoritarian, borderline kind of totalitarian regime, then I mean people are putting their life at risks, right? And uh, and I wouldn't want them to put their life at risk, right? I mean, like I think you uh, that is a consideration, right? I mean, like which is you know. It, it's definitely not hobbyism, right? I mean, like, it's, it's the opposite of that, really. Um, but then there are, like, I mean, there are basically quasi-democracies, right? And there are um, hybrid regimes, right? I mean, where there might be some spaces open for contestation. I mean, such a, what of those spaces might, might be, you know, the online space, actually? Some of social media, um, some of encrypted messaging, right? I mean, like, that, um, that exists and that would allow activists, uh, for instance, to organize, right? Um, even to organize, uh, you know, like beyond the eye of the kind of, or of, of the, of the state, right? Um, yeah, so I, I would say in this type of hybrid regime situations, you know, where there might be, you know, elections might be held, it might be, you know, semi-free. Um, in, in this case, it's about kind of organizing, right? And using the little space that does still exist to do that. That might also include, you know, the diaspora, the diaspora of course, right? And to organize people who are uh, who are abroad and uh, who have more freedoms, right? I mean, enjoy those more freedoms. Quotas, Sam, or anybody else who wants to jump in on quotas, quickly. Um, so, changing the makeup of, of people at the top, absolutely crucial. It's uh, hugely implicated in all the issues that I found. Um, so, in a basic sense, would quotas work and make a tangible difference to the sorts of issues? I think they absolutely would. 
and normatively would I be committed to them personally? Yes. Do they, is it actually something that we should do? I think the, the problem there is obviously you, you have an organisation with hundreds, thousands of people working there. If, in the case of the multinational accountancy company, the firmly held belief in meritocracy is so strong, the problem with putting a, a system like that in place is that you possibly get a sort of backfire effect from the organisation as a whole, which undermines the whole process. So I think there has to be some sense that, for me personally, you have to kind of uh, win the, the sort of ideological war in the first place with your staff before you do something like that. Ria, do you want to add anything? Um, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think uh, I've, I had an interest, for example, in gender quotas at one point, and I think the research around it actually shows that they have a good, a good effect in the short run. And I think it's a bit about this, this discussion, whether it's institutions or preferences that can change people. And I think the evidence, or my take on that, is that I think quotas are really good as a short-term solution. Um, I think if we think intuitively about, for example, universities, uh, I think in, in the first instance, quotas can really help us, because I think if we get, for example, a lot more STEM uh, university lecturers, a lot more STEM kind of in high school professors or teachers, uh, like different girls will start kind of having different aspirations and I think that's really important to kind of change those preferences so it's like the institution is a short run to change long run preferences uh, of people there's fantastic research in political science on what happened in Sweden when they introduced quotas in the Swedish Socialist Party the paper is called Mediocre Men Talented Women because what they did the political party firstly got rid of all the mediocre men and replaced them with the first generation of politicians that were women. And, of course, they were far more talented than the average men they got rid of. So the average aggregate level of talent of these politicians went up as a result of introducing gender quotas in political parties in Sweden. Anyway, with that, let me thank the panel and thank you all for coming. <laughs>